0: Hey, Christine you welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you on here as well. Actually, full disclosure, this isn't going to be the only time. Hopefully, you're going to be on the Rambling Runner podcast in the somewhat near future because you have an unbelievable book that I keep hearing good things about. That I can't wait to read. I've actually pre-ordered it already. That's not going to be this episode, but I just want to get this out of the way because I'm so excited about it. Um, We are going to talk about four different studies, a little science corner here on the Rambling Runner podcast, taking something from my good friends uh, and running coach, David Roach and Megan Roach in their podcast, which often covers, uh, they like to call it their sexy science corner. I can't I can't call it that in <laughs> yeah. good conscience. But I will say I'm really excited for this. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your book, Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. Obviously, this sort of thing has been associated with you and your work for a while. But at what point did it manifest into something that you wanted to cover in book form?
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, I've been probably covering this intersection, right, between women athletes and sports science. I want to say probably since like 2016, 2017. Um, And I noticed that, you know, it would be an article about female athlete triad here, an article about red S here, an article about, you know, knee injuries here. But there was nothing that kind of brought everything together under one umbrella. Right. That it was like we kept repeating the same cycle of articles after articles. Um, But then what? Right. Like, what does all of that mean? And then in the course of reporting, I also started having conversations with a lot of the experts in the field about the fact that, you know, women are very much underrepresented within this this field of research. Um, And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so it was like all these different threads started to come together and really, you know, decided my agent convinced me to to that maybe you should write a book um, in the fall of 2019. I was like, really? Really, is that what I want to do? But it was what I wanted to do because like, I, I find all of the science super fascinating. I find all the stories of the athletes really fascinating. And just this, like I said, this opportunity to bring it together under this one umbrella and really find the threads, right? That connected these different things. Like, why is this the case? Why is, does it have to be this way? What does that then mean, right? And how we think about women and how we think about athletics and physical activity. Um, so it was super fun.
0: I can imagine the conversation with your um, with your agent being one where, like, it would be really easy for that person to like put pressure on you for this. Be like, you can't say no to this because you're telling me that there's not enough information. that's underrepresented. Uh, underrepresented. So if you don't do it, then it's going to continue to be underrepresented.
1: Exactly. No. She was like, you should you should do this. I was like, do I do I want to spend like two years of my life investigating this? Right. And I'm I'm always I don't know. I guess people. Some of my friends, right, have said, like, I tend to downplay, you know, a lot of my work or kind of the significance of it. I was like, I don't know. No one wants to hear about this. What do, you know? Who am I to be the person to write about this? You're um, Christine You.
0: <laughs> who else is better at doing this? Right. So, if yeah. it's not you, it's going to be Christy Ashwanden. So you better okay. just be well, exactly, the Well, exactly.
1: Exactly. That was that was the main <laughs> impetus for the book was to beat Christy to the punch. Or Fair Alex, enough. <laughs> or Alex Hutchinson. Um, <laughs> no, but my, I mean, my agent was great. She, you know, kind of helped me see the bigger picture that there. And the fact that she was bringing it up, right, was like, oh, maybe there really is a market for this. Maybe people are really interested in this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, again, we'll talk about your book when your book comes out but this is this part of this conversation is also germane to what we're talking about today um so before we get into critical thinking about like how we can fix this problem um but why just from an objective perspective why is it even if some scientists have the best of intentions why can't it be harder to study women in some of these studies than men um again not just just assuming the best of intentions for yeah. all of the researchers, why is it inherently a little bit more difficult for some of these studies to incorporate women to the same degree that they incorporate men sometimes?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think there are a lot of factors, right? Like, on the surface, when you ask a lot of researchers, I think the, the initial reason is because women are more complicated, right? Because of our hormones and your menstrual cycle, it throws a lot of noise into the data. So it's really, when you're looking at scientific research, you're asking these very specific questions. And so you want to eliminate as many confounding variables as possible, right? It's like to get to, you know, X influences Y, right? So something like cycling hormones (laughs) makes that a little bit more confusing. Um, So there's there's a lot of factors like that. The fact that, you know, there's less funding uh, for, for women because a lot of the funding might come from things like the NFL or Gatorade or FIFA or something like that, which tend to be more focused on men. Um, there's things like uh, the fact that there might be some volunteer bias too among the people who choose to participate in these studies, right? We don't know. There's not enough research yet in terms of like why, you know, I don't know, maybe men might choose to participate more. Maybe there are reasons why women don't want to participate in these kinds of studies. But I think, you know, part of what I wanted to try to do with the book too is to step back even further from those issues, right. And look at, well, how did the system come to be, um, how did the, the foundations of those systems, right. For scientific research and for, you know, sports science institutions and whatnot, how did the way that they were developed Then influence, right? Those, um, you know, the fact that women aren't included, the fact that, you know, these happen on college campuses where there tends to be a lot more, you know, young male athletes. um, Because once you have that foundation and, you know, once it starts by looking at men primarily and you leave women out from the beginning, it's harder to then include them, right, along the way. And so you have this base of studies based on men when you come in and then say, well, we don't know anything about women. You know, a lot of the funders, a lot of the journals will say, but we but we have these studies. We know what happens, right? Like, why do we need to do this? This is repeating the work, right? You want to build on the scientific evidence and build on that base. So why do we need to do this? So there's a lot of, right, it's, it's a lot of unconscious bias, right? It's a lot of systematic bias um, that, creates this this tangled net, if you will, that, that makes it really hard. And I think that there are a lot of people out there right now who are doing great work in terms of trying to pull those threads apart, right? And trying to to disentangle all of that, that gender bias so that we can have more inclusive studies, so that we can learn more about not just one half of the population.
0: Right. And I think the, the reframing of you know, the women's bodies being, quote, unquote, confounding variables, being like, no, that's the part that we want to study, not the part that we're trying to eliminate.
1: Well, exactly. And I mean, it's effectively saying, right, like half the population is an exception to the rule. Well, then why is that the rule? Right. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there.
0: (laughs) And I would think, again, we'll talk about your book when your book comes out. But I think I think at the same time, like you could easily, right, if you had to start from scratch, right. You could easily just reframe it the other way and be like, okay, men's bodies are much more maybe predictable than women's bodies, you know, yep. again, generally speaking, because of like what you had mentioned. So if we just study the women, then we'll then be able to transpose this onto the men because they're much, because this is, a, because their system, that doesn't have some of these situations that we have to account for on the women's side as a as opposed to trying to do it in reverse.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so it matters where you start right it matters who's asking the questions it matters who's funding it it matters um yeah who you're putting at that center of that equation
0: yeah so this is really exciting um can i talk about one more thing before we get into these studies and that is this disconnect um, just between like what happens in the scientific realm Mm -hmm. and then often what gets um seen or distributed or just digested at all by the masses, right? Yep. That there's there's this delta between what's happening in the science and then what, what everyone else sees. And obviously this is why we need people like you to help us get there. I read these studies and my God, I can see why I don't read these studies very often. <laughs> because it was it was hard to read. Um, Not just like, not like because they were boring, but they are dense. And yep. it's hard for someone who doesn't know this stuff to kind of pick up from scratch and be like, okay, let's dive in and be like, oh boy, I feel like I have to like, do some reading before I do my reading kind of feel to it. Um, so what's that like in terms of, I know this isn't just just germane to this, you can see it in basically any academic field, Yeah. Yep. but, you know, trying to uh, minimize the delta between this high-end research work and the density of it to something a little bit more palatable and um, actionable for the masses.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are, there aren't, a ton, or I mean, I shouldn't say that, that's a huge generalization, but it is very hard for, you know, people in academia and especially those, you know, who are within the scientific field, right? To be able to talk about their work in a way that is germane to lay people, right? That makes sense and that um, normal everyday folks like you and I can understand that, right? Um, And so what I think is, I mean, stepping back again a little bit. what's really fascinating and what I love about science, right, is on the one hand, these people are investigating these super interesting questions, right? And it's like the cutting edge of this and trying to figure out, you know, whether it's, you know, some treatment for cancer or something like that, right? They're on this cutting edge of trying to understand how things work, right? On the flip side of that, science is really slow. I mean, and I kind of alluded to this before in that you start with, you know, one study and it finds something, but then you need multiple studies, right, to back that up, to to back up that hypothesis, to build the evidence base, to then ask the next incremental question, right? You know, so it's a very slow process to build up, you know, an evidence base that is solid, that is, you know that is confirmed by fact, confirmed by various different experiments in various different labs and, and whatnot. And so there's this um, there's a statistic in the field that there's a, I think it's like 17 year gap between the translation of science into clinical practice right so oh, it could God. take so right so it's 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 frustrating on this one hand if right? you work in
0: pediatrics good luck you're gonna like well, you're like it, you're like two generations away from like actually it, like doing something actionable with your research
1: exactly and so right it's like we want to know so in in a way a lot of these studies or a lot of these guidelines or consensus statements that come up that come out now like sometimes i look at them like don't we know that already like isn't that like accept, accepted or, or whatnot? But it is this this long period of time that it takes for for that evidence base to be validated, right? And to be taken as consensus and to be able to then be, you know, translated into guidelines. So there is that huge gap, right? Um, but I think more to your point about this, you know, we see a lot of studies that are covered in the media. Um, there's two parts to that, right? Like as journalists and as media um Outlets—they're always looking for stories, right? They and they—they're looking for these like sexy, interesting stories. Right. That Is they chocolate
0: can... good for you or bad for you? Exactly. Like, Should... Every week on Good Morning America. Kind I of mean,
1: feels. I need to throw out like apparently all the dark chocolate in my refrigerator <laughs> right now, right? Um... Hold on,
0: just put it in your freezer. It might be good for you next week.
1: <laughs> it's very true, but right. So it's like they're always looking for those kinds of things that like are catchy and sexy and like we can kind of grab onto. They can they can, you know, make that really good headline that will make people click. Um, but a lot of the you know again but those are oftentimes just one-off studies that is the reason why okay the next week dark chocolate is good for me because another lab found something else right. um you know and it's really hard because science often focuses on these like small like individual mechanisms or individual molecules or you know whatever it is but when you when you look at a human, right? We're not just one molecule or one mechanism. We're this combination of a bajillion different things, right? That all interact and intertwine. And so when you try to take that one research article and apply it to you as an individual, who knows, right? Like who knows what might happen?
0: All right, let's talk about, you know, the the people who can be in the middle in the situation, right? So a coach. Right yeah. so we're, we're going we dive into more of the athletic side and in this case you know talking about endurance sports you know I'm a coach I coach yeah. two or three dozen athletes and I really enjoy it it's something I've been doing been doing for a long time in that situation maybe I'm I can be a conduit between yeah. what the research is and what the athletes are doing so with that being said what advice do you have for someone like me or coaches out there to to be on top of the science when being on top of the science maybe isn't something that I've ever done in my life or been trained to do or have any experience in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will also, I meant to preface this in the beginning, is that, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I don't have, you know, a, a PhD or anything like that. You know, I, I like to tell my mom, you know, I was pre-med in college, so I like to tell my mom that I'm still kind of using some of her, you know, the, my college education for this. Um, but I think that, you know, it it is un- incumbent, right? Because for coaches, there isn't a standardized like continuing, continuing education curriculum as there is for some for medical professionals, right? So I think it is incumbent upon coaches to pay attention to a lot of the research and, you know, to pay attention to what is popping up. Um, I think the danger comes when, again, when you look at that one-off study and say, oh, this is, this is what I need to do for all of my athletes then, right? But I think it is, Looking at those studies, kind of paying attention to things like, I always hated looking at like the methods and methodology section or whatever. I was like, oh, who needs to who okay. needs to know this? I'm, I'm
0: so glad that you said that because I was having a, a double of time to... going through those.
1: Right, but I think, but it, but I think it's not not necessarily like. You know, being so familiar with like every detail of it, but just paying attention to things like who are the participants, right? Like as simple as that, is this, um, and hopefully they're telling you this too, right? It's like, how many are they? And how many participants are there? Is it a group of five or is it a group of a hundred? Is it all men? Is it all women? what's the age range on these? Are these recreational athletes? Are these elite athletes? Because all of that makes a difference for you as a coach, right? Because um, what's going to happen or matter to someone who is say an elite or a pro is very different from, you know, someone who is more of a recreational athlete, right? So I think paying attention to those types of things matters. Um, But, you know, when you do see stories in the news that keep popping, bubbling up, right? So you know, RED-S is um, relative energy deficiency in sport is something that has been getting a lot of playtime lately. And it, it, you know, it has implications on so many different things aside from just athletic performance, but it definitely does affect that. Um, Then I think that is, you know, an area where it is like, okay, maybe I should read up a little bit more on this. Um, And that, you know, thankfully now there are a lot more resources out there that are trying to to bridge this gap, right? Kind of translating some of the science and we can talk about some of those two later if you want, or I can give them right. to you.
0: Let's talk about it. Sorry, I got like <coughs> a little bit of a cough coming on. Um, hopefully, it's not related to my own child sicknesses that have been percolating in my home. Um, so I say that I got a twenty-mile run tomorrow. Hopefully, it's, it's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> <It'll> be fine. <laughs> all right, let's talk about. We're going to do four of these studies. It was the preventing um, bone stress injuries. Is that the one you want to? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Talk about first. All right. Let's, uh, let, me, let me bring that one up here um actually right, so this one I thought was incredibly interesting so preventing bone stress injuries in runners with optimal workload by Stuart warden and Brent Edwards and Richard Willie all right so um I guess first things what why did this come to your attention? I'm going to ask you that on, on all of these. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. So that's even the first question on all of them.
1: Yeah. So this, this, uh, study came out in 2021 and I mean the title itself, right. It feels like that's the Goldilocks question for all runners. Like how do I, <laughs> no one wants a bone, bone stress energy, but I want to be able to kind of challenge my body enough. Right. And like kind of increase. It, so that I am getting better and I'm progressing in my in my sport. Um, so there are a couple of things that interested me. Like one is that like ha- you know that question of like what is an optimal workload and what is there and if that actually exists. Um, the other piece of it that was really fascinating to me was more of the actual bone health piece of it, right? And how bones um, respond. So bone tissue is a very dynamic tissue. So if you push push on it, if you stress it, it responds, right? It responds by getting stronger. Um, and in a way it almost has this, this set point, right? That it wants to feel a certain amount of stress and strain. Um, so if it feels too much stress and strain, it'll respond by getting stronger, right? It'll start building more bone. If it doesn't feel enough, like you're, you're not being as active or something, or, you know, as you age or whatever it is, um, it'll start removing some of that bone, right? So that you can kind of hit this sweet spot, right? Of stress and strain. Um, So what was interesting to me was like, I always knew this idea that it was dynamic, that it responds to stress, that it'll get stronger and all of that. What I didn't realize was that bone cells can also become desensitized and become like numb to this mechanical stress. Right after a period of time, and it's it's actually not that many, not that long of a period of time of like running or like loading your bones. Um, and so I had a, <laughs> there was a researcher who explained it or you know put it into really simple terms for me. She's like, it's like when you walk into a really smelly room right? When you walk in there and it's like overpowering, right? You can smell it. You're like, oh, what's going on? Um, and that's like the bone when you're first starting to stress it, like you're just first loading it mechanically. But then after a while, you get used to it. You don't notice it anymore, right? And so that's when the bone is starting to become desensitized and like not responding as much to that mechanical stress, right? It's not getting stronger or, or whatnot. But if you leave that room, you walk out, you smell some fresh air, walk around, come back into that room, it's smelly again, right? And so it's this idea that, you know, bones will respond for a period of time, then they get numb. But if you have this rest period, right, where you, you aren't loading it, it'll respond again, right? Um, and so I thought that was really interesting thinking about it in terms of, again, this is specifically in terms of bone health, right? So if you think about running, and, you know, I'm kind of making up these numbers, but it's like, say you're, you know, you're running for like the first half mile to a, to a mile, um, your bones are responding, then it stops responding. Obviously, if you're going for like a 15, 20 mile run, you're gonna have other adaptations in your muscles and cardiovascular, you know, all these other things that you're gonna, uh, you know, that are gonna benefit you. But from a simply a bone perspective, all of that, like some of that additional loading isn't helping your bone get stronger. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it was funny how they were personalizing the bones yeah. <laughs> in this study. I was like, you know, the bones get bored after like four weeks. Yeah. Like, I didn't realize they had personalities. But this I didn't is exciting. either.
1: <laughs> I didn't either. Like, who knew, right? But like, it was such an interesting idea. It was something like I hadn't thought about before, and so that's why, right? It's like when you just that cumulative load then adds up. So while while your muscles might be adapting, while your cardiovascular system might be adapting on the bone level only you're just you're just accumulating more load right which could then potentially push it over that threshold where you know your bone then might not recover right um it might not be able to repair itself as well and lend itself to something like a bone stress injury um and so this idea that you know me you know maybe taking a break right or kind of fitting in these recovery periods where you know, maybe you do a morning session and then you come back and do an evening session from a bone, again, from a bone perspective, that might be more beneficial.
0: Right. And they go out of their way in the, the um, I want to say article, but it's not, it's not in the, what should I call it? In the paper?
1: In the in the in the journal article in the article, in the, I think in the it's journal, right.
0: yeah. So they go out of their way to say, like, listen, we we understand that like bone health is not merely a function of like stress yeah. versus n- like no stress, right? It's, it definitely has that. As you mentioned, it has like, is it being stimulated or is it now like into like automaticity mode, yeah, right? Yeah, like, you kind of like you hit that that functionality, and it's it's it really is interesting to to that effect. It also it kind of reminds me of. um You know, while they always say like, hey, lifting weights is good for your bone health. But if you look at how they describe how bones react to stress and then you think about how someone lifts weights, it basically dovetails perfectly like yeah. you're, you're lifting weights you're doing it for a very short amount of time you take a break and then you get back to it it seems like even if you're not exhausting your muscles um yeah. and you know you're doing that way you're actually you're increasing your bone strength because of the uh some of the loading and unloading that you're doing and just in in the fashion and the timing with which you're doing it yeah. um so even if you're not like all right my glutes aren't like i'm not maxing out or i'm not even getting sore because i'm not doing that much weight it's still an active load on your bones so it really is an interesting thing and it's also thinking like no one like works out with the primary function of like increasing the strength of their bones right yeah. it's not like it sounds like it seems like it's a nice thing um a nice thing to have happen like concurrently yeah, yeah, yeah. with everything else but no one's like all right the focus of my 2023 workout plan is to increase <laughs> my bones or to help yep. my bones and it was like all right this so it was like, I was trying to read this I'm like okay at what point when am I gonna think like okay Increasing bone strength is one of the primary functions that I'm trying to do and like, well, that's probably never going to happen. I guess it's more like the opposite end of the spectrum, like making sure that I'm not putting myself in a position to get a bone, a bone, a BSI, right? A bone stress injury uh, as opposed to maximizing bone strength
1: yeah well so i will argue that the one period of time in which you do want to maximize like think about maximizing bone strength is during adolescence
0: yes all right i'm so glad you said that because i definitely wanted to get to that point i was definitely thinking more as an adult hey everybody are you tired of the spike and crash and gi distress that comes with sugar-based sports nutrition It's time to try UCAN if you are. Even if you aren't, I'd be honest with you. I'm such a big UCAN fan because UCAN utilizes steady release carbs instead of sugar. So you don't feel the highs and the lows in your energy. I have noticed this really, like, you know, for me, I love to use, take two scoops of UCAN before my long runs. One scoop if it's like a kind of a medium long run. Uh, Also, I love the edge energy gels as well. For me, I just don't have to worry about nutrition on the run. And it's just, it's so nice to not have to worry about this sort of thing. You know, it's like some crazy, you know, especially if you're going through some some crazy stressful times, just knock one thing off the list, but things you don't have to worry about certainly is helpful. And it's not just amateurs like me. Top marathon runners in the U.S. like Emily Sisson, Sarah Hall, Emma Bates, Meb Kofleski, and now Kira D'Amato all rely on UCAN to fuel their training and their recovery. UCAN's award-winning edge energy gels last longer than other gels, and it provides a more consistent feeling of energy. They aren't too thick or sweet and don't have to chase them down with water uh for me i love them cuz they're more like they're more liquidy than other gels you just don't have that aftertaste as well which is really really nice and finally you got to try the bars the bars are unbelievable they're like chocolate you get the chocolate peanut butter frankly they just taste like candy bars they're fantastic especially if you're going like on an early morning run like you wake up you want to have something and you want to hit the hit the road i that's the spot for me with those things and um you know Unless I want to just use them for snacks because they're just so darn tasty. Really, they just taste like candy bars. And they're absolutely fantastic. You can try the full variety of UCAN products at UCAN.co. That's U-C-A-N, UCAN.co. And you can save 20% on your entire order by using code Rambling. Not only do you save 20%, but it also helps out the podcast. So go to UCAN.co today and use code Rambling to save 20% on your offer.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. No. Definitely. As an adult, it is. It is more just like playing with that fine line, right? And like, so you're not tipping over towards, you know, more bone removal, more, you know, micro damage versus repairing that for sure.
0: Right. Right. It's kind of like thinking about like the plumbing in your house. Like, I don't need to have the best pipes, but as long yeah. as they're not leaking, <laughs> exactly. then we're fine. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, yeah. Um, as you can, I, all of my all of my comparisons. Uh, relate to like my current lengths so, and we go back to like the 500 episodes of this podcast whenever I make a comparison you can probably guess what's happening in my house at any moment based on like the comparisons or metaphors <laughs> that I'm using um to my dismay um let's talk about younger athletes because I think this is the interesting interesting side here um I think it dovetails with what we've heard many times um but I thought it was nice it was an interesting point and I think at least for like how I'm trying to parent my own kids at least like well, at least one point of validation and something that i'm doing correctly yeah so i was um, excited to read this part
1: my kids are kind of sick of me harping on the importance of their bone health right now as teenagers they're like god can we not have the bone health talk again mom <laughs> but like but again this is something that i didn't know as a kid right my my dad was a doctor you know but like he was a neurosurgeon, but you know he, it wasn't something that we talked about, right? Growing up, but adolescence is the period of time in which your body is laying down bone, right? It is building bone, it is building, you know, bone strength, bone mass, bone girth. All of that is happening during these critical periods of growth, right? During puberty and whatnot, and you lay down. And again, I'm, you're going to have to fact check my <laughs> statistic because I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, it's somewhere around like. of your adult bone mass by the time that you're 18. Right. And so what you, every, I guess, let me back up again. So every person based on their genetics, based on whatever has their like optimal bone mass, right? Like the amount of bone that their body can lay down. So during puberty, right, you're laying down, you're trying to reach that optimal, that optimal, um, point. Right. And I, in the book I kind of talk about it as like you know those like fundraising thermometers that you have at the YMCA, right? You wanna reach that top, you wanna to get to the top of that thermometer. And so during adolescence you're you're filling that thermometer in with all these different activities that you're doing and and whatnot. If you don't reach that top by the time, you know, you know, you're in your early twenties or something like that, that's it. You can't there's no adding on. There's only keeping what you have, right? So that's why you know, adolescence is this really big critical period for building, for building bone mass. And so, um, you know, in the study they talk about, they actually break it down right into different, um, period, uh, life periods for, you know, adolescents for folks with, um, kind of mature skeletons. So during adolescence, it is really not only just loading your bones regularly, but also making sure you're doing like a lot of multi-directional, movement because bone responds in those different planes of motion, right? So you want to be making sure that you're not just doing like running or jumping and like those types of things, but you want to be doing like the lateral movements. That's why there's such an emphasis around making sure kids are playing a lot of different sports, right? That you're not specializing in something too early. You're, you know, for a lot of kids, like, right, you're not just running cross country or track and that's it, right? During these critical years.
0: That's exactly right. I know for some people that bumps up against their, their tightly held belief of like the 10,000 hour rule. And it's like, that's great. But if you're injured, it doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter. Right.
0: Like, like a healthy person has 10,000 problems. uh, An unhealthy person has one problem.
1: Yeah. And like feel to it, the, you know, it's, it's once you have one injury, you're more likely to have more, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, so it is really important that you're, it's, you know, I like to think of it in a way like you're you're building this buffer around your bones and your body, right? During this period of time.
0: Yeah. And I think I, I, I when I was reading this, I was visualizing it as like one of those um, spider web graphs. Mm. You ever see those? where so you have like, say it's like six or eight points and it kind of, you can all kind of go out yeah. to the, the outer edges of the, the hexagon or the circular kind of pattern. And it's like, you know, if you have like a deficiency in like one of two of those uh, vectors or whatever the word is, um, you know, it, it, it's not what you want to see, right? It looks like some sort of like amoeba glob kind of thing, as opposed to like somewhat of a circular type dimension. And like that's it, it. It it I think it. Um, when you compare it to anecdotal evidence, I know which gets tricky because you can just cherry pick here or there. But how many? elite athletes elite runners have we seen like hey i grew up as a soccer player like yeah i feel like that story has been told not hundreds but thousands of times and i think about that like that makes all the sense in the world because the soccer players are running a ton but they're yep. also moving in all the planes of motion and they're leaving the ground yeah right which yeah, is yeah. which is also an important thing so even if you only played soccer all year round like you're moving in all the directions yeah so like i think that's also part of it too it's like I think specializing isn't isn't a good idea, so I'm not advocating it. But say if someone were to specialize, if they mm-hmm. were doing it in a sport that allowed them to work in all the different planes of motion, right? Let's say you're someone who, like, does, like, American Ninja – like, Mike's son, like, yeah. does American Ninja Warrior classes, right? Like, well, he pretty much goes in every direction. <laughs> so, like, Absolutely. if he were to specialize, that would – you know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be – it wouldn't uh, have some sort of deleterious effect as opposed to, like, if he only ran with me on the roads kind
1: yeah. of thing. Well, and I think it goes back to what you were saying before, too, about strength training, too, right? It's like kids can also start to learn about strength training and, like, building the muscles, right, that are, that are going to support a lot of their activity and support their bodies and their bones, right, kind of throughout all of this. And that's something that, you know, we all could benefit from. I know, you know I could be doing a lot more strength training for sure. But, you know, that's but it is thinking more holistically about all of that.
0: Yeah. And I think it also, you know, there's a lot of masters athletes that listen to this show. And I think it also just shows again, hey, even if you're like, hey, I'm strong enough, I don't need to lift weights or whatever. Like, I'm not I don't care about the aesthetics of it, whatever. Like, then just it, if you need to reframe it in order to get in the gym, then reframe it. Like, it, yeah, think about it as your bone health, because yeah. as you said, like, it's been proven you're not going to really increase your bone density and all of those things. um, You're only going to like basically bring it back to the mean or. Yeah, not not the mean necessarily, but kind of bring it back to your pre-programmed level yep. once you've reached maturity, um, which is also vitally important. And for a masters athlete, is one of those things where, again, I think like when I read this study, I think the big thing for me was like if you don't use it, you lose it. Was like that yeah. was basically the the summary of it.
1: Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think also for masters athletes, right? Like we do start, you know, around 40, right? We start to lose bone more consistently and at a faster rate. Um, So it is, I do think it is important, right? Like a lot of, I know I struggled a lot with this is like, all I wanted to do was keep running, you know, like as I've gotten older, but then recognize I'm like, actually, no, I need to be doing more plyometric stuff. I need to be doing more like lifting heavy stuff. I need to be kind of doing all these things to, you know, to keep my bones healthy so that I can also do the running that I love to do.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's like, hey, I love to eat. He's like, I don't like grocery (laughs) shopping. It's like, well, good luck with that.
1: (laughs) I hate grocery (laughs) shopping is the worst.
0: (laughs) Um, All right. So which one are we doing next? We're going to do like a little tandem here, right?
1: Yeah. So we're going to talk about uh, recommendations and nutritional considerations for female athletes. Yep. And... um, a review. A review of
0: non-pharmacological Think. strategies in the treatment of <laughs> reds or red S or if you will know the relative energy deficiency in sport. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the, these these were definitely like two kindred spirits in yeah. in, 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 in the in the research here. Um, so, which one do you want to start off with first?
1: So let's start with the recommendations and nutritional considerations for female athletes.
0: Okay. Let's do it. Um
1: yeah, so this paper also came out in 2021. Um so there's a couple of reasons why I I picked out this paper. Um one is because right, obviously this is an area, one area in which women are underrepresented in the research and so we don't know as much about uh, nutritional guidelines and train and you know recommendations and stuff like that for women as we do men. Um, but also because nutrition sports nutrition It feels like this huge maze with like a million landmines in it, right? Like there's so many conflicting things out there. It's so confusing, but you know, I find that, and I know I used to do this too, right? It's like, well, what's the thing, what's the thing that I need to do that's going to make me like recover better, feel better, run better, you know, all of these things. There's got to be a thing, whether it's a supplement or a diet or whatever it is, right? Right. Um, and so what I appreciated about this paper is like, not only did it kind of lay out some of the specific things that, that women tend to be, you know, they're more pitfalls for women as, but, um, in their recommendations, they really just brought it back to the basics, right? This idea that, look, um, Forget all of that nonsense about supplements, about diets, about carb loading, or I mean, you know, fasted, cardio, and you know, all this other stuff that you hear out there, keto, paleo, whatever it is, right? Forget about all of that. Start with just making sure you're eating enough. Right, making sure that you're getting enough calories into your body so that your body can do what it needs to do, both in terms of just everyday living, but also to support your training and performance. Because if you are not eating enough, your body can't adapt to that training that you're putting into it. Right. Um, so I really appreciated that, um, and they lay out what they called, I think it's like the hierarchy of nutritional needs or something like that. Um, and it's essentially a pyramid, right? Um, starting with, you know just eating enough and then we go from there. Then we can start thinking about this. Then we can start thinking about this. Um, and I thought that, again, it's just this this idea that we tend to get so caught up in all these details about what to eat and how to eat and you know, yada, yada, yada. And we forget about the basics sometimes.
0: Yeah, let's bring up what that pyramid is. It's, it's funny they actually put the words in the pyramid. You're like, they need to come up with phrases that actually match this pyramid shape (laughs) because that just looks like a tower. Um, All right. So, yeah. So starting with energy availability and hydration being the base, right? And building up from there, macro micronutrients, pre, intra and post exercise fueling, exercise intensity and duration, type of exercise, and then endogenous hormones, exogenous hormones, other age effects, and then individualization at the end. I like this as well because... When people talk about nutrition and they start talking about like what you should do, I feel like what you're setting yourself up for is like this endless list of things. Yeah. <laughs> right. As opposed to like, all right, what shouldn't we do? Okay. Yeah. Here's one. Don't restrict. Yeah. It's like one with a number one with a bullet is like, seeming like in this one and in, in the other uh, article we're going to talk about in a second, it seemed to be like the glowing number one thing when it comes to this sort of, this sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's tricky, right? Because a lot of this nutritional advice is caught up in diet culture. Um, and you know, this, I, and restriction, right. And this idea that there should be this specific weight or, you know, body composition or whatever it is, right. That we're, we're trying to achieve. Um, and it, you just end up falling down this huge, like rabbit hole of, you know, trying to make your life fit around these parameters that are really unrealistic and that really just don't support your body right in the end um and i mean and and part of the reason i also like the study too is like you see this a lot in um you know talk these days about the menstrual cycle right and like how important yes 100 percent, super important to that the menstrual cycle is that we're talking about it within this context of sports and athletics um but along with that, we have a lot of talk too about like cycle syncing, right? Do this during this phase of your cycle, don't do that. You should eat more of this or not. Um, but again, it's, it's another, it feels to me, another one of those things that then complicates just the basic act of like just eating enough, right? Um, when, you know, like, like it is in this pyramid, considering those hormonal factors, it's pretty much like at the tippy top of that pyramid, right? It's like after you take care of all these other things, after you've met all of your micronutrient and macronutrient needs, then, you know, maybe you are at the point where thinking about something like your hormones will give you that edge, right? And for a lot of people, just taking care of those basic things will give you a huge edge to begin with. And kind of futzing with your hormonal profile, you know, what to eat during this hormonal phase or whatever. I mean, frankly, that will probably benefit like, I don't know, 1%, like the elite of the elite who are looking for that, that slim margin that will, you know, give them just that little boost to, to make it onto the podium or whatever it is. But for most of us, I I don't know, it seems like a yeah. lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like the, it's like the 80, 20 rule born out, yeah. right? Like, Spend your time on the things that matter the most, right? Like if your house is in disrepair, don't worry about your throw pillows, right? Like you don't need to go there. They're great. That's great. Worry about something else right now. We'll take care of that um, when we get this, all this other stuff figured out. And one of the, one of the things that was uniform in both this um, piece, this paper and the other paper we're going to talk about in a second is the formula they use for energy availability, so yeah. energy availability being 45 K calories for a kilogram yeah. exponential to the negative one. Can you please tell me what that means? Cause I'm like sitting here trying to do the math. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to mess this up. I'm not going to pretend like I know what this means. So this, this seems like an important thing to know, but I also, I'm not a scientist or mathematician, so I don't even know what it means.
1: Well, so it is, and it isn't an important thing to know. I'm like, honestly, Matt, like I can't, I can't tell you what it means it's um i have the equation i have the equation like written down and like explained like an explanation for but like i can't even find it right now but essentially right it's this it's this formula that researchers came up with in a lab right where you have these equip this equipment and this ability to calibrate you know people's um you know fat-free body mass and like measure x y or z in terms of energy intake and energy outtake or expenditure um but in reality, for most people, <laughs> we're not in a lab. We live in the real world. And it's, you know, it's not really something that's actionable or practical. And frankly, you know, there's there's a piece of it that I worry too. It becomes this other number that we start to fixate on. Mm-hmm. Like, Well, I need to make sure I'm, you know, at this level, right? Like I'm, you know, um, achieving this thing, Um And so this is why I was interested in the second article because it talks about the fact that when for you as a coach, right, if you're worried about an athlete or, you know, they come to you and say, oh, my doctor's concerned that I might have, you know, red us or whatever it is. you're not going to be measuring their fat-free mass and like doing this weird calculation, right? But it's- I don't even know like, how to measure my
0: own. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. Or even <laughs> like if they're, I mean, frankly, it should be more that they're working with a sports nutritionist, right? on this. Right. But, you know, it's then, okay, so what can we do? And so this second paper really talks about a couple of different concrete areas in which people can start to address and think about, you know, what they might be able to do if they are in danger of red S, if they have been diagnosed with that. Because again, I think it, you know, it becomes, you know, we, it becomes this thing. like Red S becomes this thing like this overwhelming thing, like, oh my God, what do I do? right? Like, how can I get my period back? How can I make sure that I'm recovering well? How can I get myself out of this energy debt? Because that's essentially what it is, right? Your, your body doesn't have enough energy to meet the needs of not only its daily functioning, but also um, your training expenditure, right? So you're essentially running with an empty gas tank in a way. Um, and so it has repercussions for bone health, for immunity, for cardiovascular health, mental health, as well as athletic performance, right? And, you know, there's some literature out there that kind of correlates Red S with overtraining uh, syndrome. Like there's a lot of overlap there. Um, but again, it's this question of like, what, what can I do about this? Um, so this paper, I'm cheating and looking at my notes because I can't remember it off the top of my head. How um, is that
0: cheating? This <laughs> sounds like the, uh, the, the, the absolute appropriate <laughs> way a- of approaching this. <laughs>
1: um so you know some of the some of the interventions that they talked about right were like obviously increasing the amount of food that you're eating and kind of making sure that that's consistent throughout the day because there's also research that shows that when you have um even if you meet your energy needs for an entire say like 24 hour period if you have lots of like dips during the day right you're um Where you're not eating, where your body doesn't have enough fuel right you're you're busy, you skip breakfast or you have a lunch meeting, you sit, you have to skip lunch, and so there's like a this long interval you know between your next meal that also has a h- big repercussions, right so it's making sure you're eating enough and making sure you're eating consistently um and then looking at um you know things like carbohydrates, right like carbohydrates have a bad name, you know, have a bad reputation, but, you know, carbohydrates make a big difference in terms of how you're, in terms of your hormonal health and how that your hormones respond, um, to make sure all of these things in your body are functioning well, um, looking at things at fiber intake, because, you know, what a lot of folks have found is for folks who, who tend to eat a lot of fiber, right? So think like big bulky salads, um, you know, a lot of beans and stuff like that, which is super healthy, really good for you, but calorie-wise, right? Like it, they tend to fill you up before you might meet all of your calorie needs. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, right. It, it goes back to like you see um, professional eaters, right? Yeah, people who like win like the the hot dog eating competition. Like one of the things they do is like they'll eat like a ton of lettuce for weeks. Yeah. Not for the calories or because they're on some sort of diet, but just to to enlarge their stomachs yeah. to get them to get them ready for a competition. Again, that's a pretty dramatic comparison, but it kind of lets the point of like, hey, you can feel full on this stuff without actually getting, getting the full. energy availability or energy yeah. uptake that you're going to need.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, thinking about – and then there's other things, right? Thinking about things like, um, you know – for bone health, are you getting your calcium, your vitamin D, that type of thing? Um, so there's a lot of like, it's almost like piecemeal, like pra- very practical level things that as an athlete, with your medical provider, with your sports nutritionist, you know, in conjunction with your coach, like to think about in terms of like how you can um, address some of these energy availability needs.
0: Right. And I feel like this is one of those things where if you just like only go like on common sense with this stuff you're probably better off than like diving into like the millions of rabbit holes that go here right yeah like, i love the comedian and, and the name of the person um is you know is has has left my mind i've been trying to think of it this entire conversation it's never coming back it is like this whole rant i'm like all right you want to know what nutrition science is like these days i'll tell you let me ask you a question is milk good or bad for you yeah and the whole, the, the you know, the audience is like silent. And you're like, that's my point. <laughs> we don't even know if like milk is good for you. Right. And it's so funny because like if we just all just like were to meditate for five minutes, clear our mind and to just have like a common sense, like, OK, I'm going to think about like what is good to put in my body. Yeah. I feel like most of us would probably be like an A student yeah. on that test right Absolutely. but all of a sudden like the more we dive into this stuff like all of a sudden we can't see the forest through the trees and it's like oh my like i don't even know where to begin anymore
1: yeah yeah and it you get hung up on things that don't matter right and like you said like you lose the the end point like r- what you're actually striving for with all of this
0: right and then we, in, in the red s um paper they talk a lot about like all right you have the um energy availability so the amount, that, the amount that you're consuming, basically, right? You have your your EEE, like your um, exercise energy expenditure, right? Yep. And then you also have the EI, so the energy uptake. Am I get all this right? Or intake. And yeah. so like, basically, that's like the pathway between like, all right, you eat this, you need that, and you got to be able to like use it, right? It's like yeah. the highway that connects the two in, in, in a sense. And they, they really go out of their way to, to do that. And I feel like you're there's so many folks, and I know you're not, a doctor in this sense right to your to your, to your mother's dismay um yes. but so you have like some people who go through this where they say okay well can i get through this while still exercising right yeah. and i know that's a tricky thing and they should definitely talk to their doctors but they they try to approach it in this in this piece while trying to also be understanding of like hey there's so much individualization here we probably shouldn't you know completely well, talk with like a, a, a too, too broad of a brush
1: yeah, I mean, and I think it, it also depends, right, on the level of athlete that you are. It's yeah. going to be a different game if you are a professional athlete, right, and this is your your livelihood, your in-season or whatever it is. Um, that's that's a trickier thing, right? But for someone who is, you know, a recreational athlete, an amateur athlete, um, you know, adjusting your exercise levels is one could be one part of the equation, right? Like it could be dialing it back a little bit, you know, for whatever period of time it might be, um, or, you know, kind of doing easy stuff versus any like intensity or whatever it is. Um, But that's all part of the equation. But again, like it is, it does depend on, you know, who you are, where you are, what your goals are, right?
0: It's true. And I think the the one thing that makes it clear in here in this in this paper was like, hey, there's there's an easy part of this and there's like a hard part of this. Like the easy part yeah. is like. You need to eat enough. Yeah. Right. And It is probably more than you think.
1: Yeah. And it's. And it's then.
0: Yeah. And then the hard part is like, but once you're in this situation, there's a lot of factors here and you really need to you you can't just wing it, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's you know, I think the other hard part, too, is like it's going to take time right? It's your body is reacting in a way that it it's protecting itself, right? It's trying, it's, it's a primal thing. It just wants to survive. Um, so it's going to take a bit of time to unwind that and to get out of that, that state of stress, that state of fear, right? Where it is, um, it really is just trying to protect you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You want to touch on the last one? Yes. All right. So I think I have it here. Let's see here. You sent me this nice list, which was very helpful. Thank (laughs) you. All right. Individualized um, endurance training based on recovery and training status in recreational runners. That's a long way of saying, should you have a predetermined plan or an individualized plan? Say, like, basically, should you use the Hal Higdon running plan that you got on the Internet? Or should you have a coach helping you out and making adjustments to the plan, I guess? Is that a good way of doing a synopsis th- of it? I think it? so, yeah.
1: So, I mean, this is... <laughs> and a, no this- offense to Hal
0: Higdon, every single person who's been on the show, I think 95% of runners who've been on the show... That's what I started have, with. Exactly. I actually had Hal on the show. I was like, hey, I want to <laughs> give you a heads up. Every single person who's been on the show has used one of your plans. I think yeah. I'm doing like a running tally, and here you go, Christine You, She's on the list, too. Scratching another, another tally plan. mark.
1: Yep. <laughs> So this is, you know, a study, a 2022 study. Um, So like you said, it's a group of recreational runners. There were 20 men, 20 women to start. Um, So they had one group follow, like you said, a prescribed program, right? Where they're like, do this, you know, X days, this week, whatever. And then another group that followed an individualized program where their training load was adjusted. So either decreased, maintained or increased based on recovery data. And they were using... um, heart rate variability, perceived recovery, so, you know, muscle soreness, and then how the heart rate changed based on running, seed, running speed. So, right, like if your heart rate, you, if running the same speed, your heart was, was elevated, that was a sign maybe to step back a little. Um, and then the plan was adjusted tw- two times a week. Um, so the headline of the story, right, is that individual you should individualized plans are better right what they found was that um, both groups improved their max treadmill speed and 10k time um, but that the 10k time improvement was greater in the individual group it improved by about two times more and what was interesting in the individualized group was that they seemed to respond better to training so they had um A higher rate of responders to this work so right like that you could you could see a difference or it it affected um their outcomes Um, and so that on the surface again like when i first saw this i was like oh that's great right like because i think there's a mentality that i know i've experienced in that like for example following my like first hal Higdon plan like i gotta follow it to a t right? Like I got to do all of these runs, these workouts or whatever it is. If I skip anything, I'm screwed. Right. And so there's almost this, um, this, you're, you're just pinned to this plan and you can't really adjust, you know, doesn't matter if I'm stressed, doesn't matter if I'm sick, doesn't matter, you know, whatever it is. And so I was like, oh, great. This, this, this study kind of looks at like how important it is to individualize it to pay attention to your body right to see how you're recovering and you know all of those good things that we try to tell people because we're all individuals right we're not just um you know cutouts of each other and who all respond the same way but yeah
0: i I have this big (laughs) smile on my face because i like i read this study i was like oh my god like I don't think I could disagree with these authors, like, anymore, like, in every single aspect of this study. It was, like, amazing. It was, like, I was, like, I think I need to start, like, I felt like it was festivist. I need to, like, write down, like, airing of my grievances, like, <laughs> in the middle of this. Because it was, like, oh, my. So many things, right? So I think when you first yeah. read the the abstract and you start diving in, you're, like, oh, okay, I think I see where this is going. That the, the predetermined people were probably working too hard and... The people who were getting yep. individualized attention based on their perceived recovery in their HRV, which, let's be honest, measures the same exact thing, um, that those people were going to be like, okay, I need to adjust, maybe scale back a little bit because I'm, I'm overstressed and things like that. It ended up being the exact opposite. The predetermined model had like a two-week-on, one-week-on method. The individualized model, they're like, all right, we're going to base this on people's, uh, you know, how they're feeling. And they basically, like, didn't take breaks. Not only did they not take breaks. For the most part, basically this like took the breaks out of the plan. But they did, you know, a little like mini base session. They did six weeks of volume only and they did six weeks of of uh, high intensity training yeah. that they characterized as not that much high intensity training, which if you give it to a running coach, they would be like, oh, my God, this is like way more intense than I would ever give my athletes. It was three times a week of six by three minutes max effort. Which is, like, an incredibly hard workout. And even, like, when I give my workout that workout to my athletes, I don't say three minutes max effort. I think it's, like, (laughs) three minutes at, like, 5K pace. Yeah. Which is, like, not max effort. Right? (laughs) So I remember when I was looking at this, I was like, oh, my God. Like, they are, like, really pushing these athletes. And what it reminded me of was, like, this is the cross-country high school plan. Like, this is what it was. Right. This is what cross-country athletes in high school do. And it's the exact same thing that is uniformly addressed is like, this is what you should not do with athletes. Yeah. Of like just hard, 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 hard. Right. So you have your race on Saturday, you have a race on Tuesday and you have a workout on Thursday. And that was basically the schedule they set up. And they went six weeks hard like this. The cortisol numbers were higher than the PD group, as well as the, the creatine kinase numbers, which were both stress um, measurements. And I'm just like, oh my god! Like, the problem with this study was the length of it. Yeah. Like, like the only way you could come to the conclusion of like the individualized training plan was better than the PD training plan was because the, 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 the duration was so short. If you did this for an entire year, the individualized plan would have these wild variables. People like, I'm burnt out. I need to take all this time off. I'm getting, you know, we yeah. talked about bone stress injuries. Like, I was, I couldn't believe the more I dove into that that article like that's just the makeup of it not the makeup of it but like that they would try to take that plan and then extrapolate out from it in the way that they did i feel like you could extrapolate out different things like we're gonna do that like let's let's measure the creatine kinase numbers and the cortisol numbers to see if they're elevated and also check back like in two months to see how that person if they continued running or not or whether they were burnt out or not like i feel like that the stuff that they took from it was like juxtaposed, of like what that study could have actually told you. Yeah, I, know I went on a huge rant there. I apologize, but no, I was no, no. I was like, I was like turning red in my bed reading it.
1: Well, but I think that it points to right some of the challenges of looking at scientific studies and tra- extrapolating the information from them, right, and translating that into real world use cases, because, like you said. If you look at the abstract, if you look at the conclusions or whatever that, this, that the researchers drew, you know, it seems to be pretty clear, right? But if you then dive further into the methodology, like what they actually did, what some of the other measures that came out that, you know, might not have been part of their hypothesis, but ultimately, right, were part of their results, it, it might be a different story, right? So I think... The other thing that it points to is a lot, a lot of these studies are just a point in time too, in terms of, to your point, right? If this was something that they, that they'd been doing for a longer term or like it, it wouldn't be feasible, right? Like it, it just wouldn't work. But if you're looking at a point in time, this is what happens. And those, again, it's helpful. It's helpful information that adds to the evidence base, but how, what does that mean for the average person to then take out of that? I don't know, right? It's like we ha- we need to like look into it a little bit more. We need to like ask more questions. And I think that, you know, if anything, what I hope is that, um, you know, when people listening to this is that, you know, when you do look at scientific studies and again, they aren't the most interesting things. They often put me to sleep and like my eyes glaze over all the time. But I think like it is just to be a more critical reader of some of these things and to ask questions, you know, not necessarily question, oh, this isn't fact or whatever it is, but like understanding, okay, who's asking the question? What questions are they, re- are they asking? What was unexpected? What's some of the limitations of the study? How did they put the study together? How many people are in this and how applicable is this to a general population? Um, and I think that those are all important things to just keep in mind.
0: Right. And I thought the interesting part here was that the, um, the, predis- the, the, the prescribed uh, improvement was still there. So people were yeah. taking a lot of rest, um, comparatively speaking, at least to the other group, but they were still improving. Right. Yeah. And it was like this was like why you see um, athletes who like go really hard for a short period of time. Also, see improvement. Like the reason they do it is because it's working. They're not like, they're not working really hard. Be like, why am I doing this? This doesn't even matter. I'm not making any improvement. But right? they are seeing that improvement. But then there's, you know, the check's going to bounce at some point with that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. And, but the interesting part was that for the other group, they still improve, just not at the other rate. So the idea is like, hey, you can still improve, but you probably can improve for longer. Right. If you yeah. keep extending this graph, you're going to keep improving. And this other group is not going to because they're not going to be able to maintain this kind of cycle.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, what's, what's that time frame that you're looking for improvement, right? Like, so if it is, what was it? Six, six weeks, yeah, six weeks. weeks, or whatever it was, yeah. if you're looking for that type of improvement, oh, sure, maybe then sh- maybe, right. But if this is, and I hope for most people, right, this is a longer term, like, issue, a commitment, right, to athletic training and progression and just improvement, not something that you just want to be a flash in the pan for that, like, you think about that as well, too, right?
0: Right. And I thought it was also interesting, because they're like, all right, we're gonna, the idea behind the study was, hey, if we're seeing elevated stress levels by the metrics that we're we're using uh, for our day to day measurements, I and mean, for HRV it was like you know basically a rolling average over a four week span, and then what's the daily um, or nightly I should say HRV number compared to that rolling rolling span, things like that, you know we have the ability to downshift the training, and they never did. <laughs> it seemed like they never downshifted anything, which was like oh. All right, like I thought, that was the. It was so yeah. interesting. I was like, this is like all of my preconceived notions. Like, were like, oh, this isn't how they're going to use it. And then, like, then after the fact, being like, oh, this is this was really interesting. Like, I feel like if someone else could take this exact same study, not change yeah. anything, yeah, and go into it, like, are, what are we actually going to study in this experiment? I feel yeah. like a variety of different researchers researchers or research groups would have tried to extrapolate out very different things than the people who wrote that article did.
1: Yeah. And it, it might be too, right? Like, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started recording, but like, what is the hypothesis that they went into this study with, right? Like, and it, it might also just be a function of that. This is the question that they chose to look at, that they got funding for, that they got approved, that fit whatever parameters, right? And... That's what it was, and so what it, it might not have been as um, either comprehensive or you know applicable or whatever, like interesting, right? As it what it it could have been.
0: Right. Absolutely. And going back to like who funded it, I thought the interesting one for like the bone science experiment or uh, study was actually funded by the NBA.
1: Yeah. 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 I
0: thought that was interesting. Um. You know, Obviously there. Was, you know, worried about the health of their athletes, right? Because their course. athletes fall apart, it's gonna hurt everything. Um yeah. So, yeah. I thought that was that was interesting. I was trying to think, like, all hey, right, what is it? What does this tell them? I'm like, nothing new, right? <laughs> right? And like, yeah. The NBA is not gonna be in charge of like, you know, how people are parenting their kids. So, like, the, like yeah. the, the 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 real actionable stuff that they would need, you know, is kind of like goes to like the not the edges of the age range, but like doesn't really sure. help like the age range of like their constituents. Right? It's more like the masters athletes and like the prepubescent athletes. And it's like, if you're already in the NBA, like your, your bone health is kind of is what it is and you're getting yeah. enough exercise anyway. So it's really not going to have any impact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious for you as a coach, like, do you use HRV or, you know, other measures like that with your athletes or what do you see as the value of that?
0: I don't, um, I have used, I've used a whoop before, um, and it didn't, I remember I would wake up and I would be able to tell like what my HRV was anyway. Like I never felt like it was telling me something that I didn't already know. I yeah. I, I never experienced one time where I was like, I feel X, Y, Z and the HRV reading told me something different. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. one time. So I was like, okay, well, I guess this just validates like, you know, how do I feel? That's probably correct. Right. Um. So that was nice to know. But once I validated that, I didn't need it anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other time I used it, was just to track um, my resting heart rate mm-hmm. after I had COVID. So I wanted okay. to just see, like, you know, um, as I was coming back from COVID, I, I took, you know, I think like six or eight days off from running. And I was getting back into it. I just wanted to have a measurement of what of how I was doing. So I didn't even use heart rate. It was just like more of, I didn't use HRV. It was more of the, the, yeah. just the daily resting heart rate. And I got to be honest with you. I think resting heart rate might be a better measure than HRV yeah for a variety of different reasons
1: yeah yeah, yeah. no but, it's really but i think ultimately
0: if you're like just try to be in tune with your body i don't feel like these metrics um it's kind of like kind of like getting your heart rate while you're running like yeah if you're paying attention to your body you probably can guess pretty close to what your your heart rate is but yeah. right, if you've used a heart rate monitor at all. Like I don't yeah. I don't think it's incredibly hard. Just get just thinking about like what your breathing is like and your exertion level is like, I feel like you're gonna be able to guess pretty closely to what it yeah.
1: is. I know I feel like I'm like the crotchety old lady where I'm like too many you know, too many wearables, too much date, too much data. Like, you know, it's like which is helpful, right, on the one hand, but then do we then lose the ability of actually understanding what is happening in our own bodies right and kind of being attuned to that at least
0: right i, I it's kind of like do i need a scale i already have pants yeah. like i know if my pants fit yeah if my pants fit i don't need a scale and if they don't fit i also don't need a scale because i know what that means too <laughs> right so it's kind of like you're just telling me something i already know and i'm paying 60 dollars a month for that privilege i don't feel like i need that yeah yeah Absolutely. so i don't know that's that's my take on it
1: yeah no definitely
0: Christine, thank you for coming on the show. I cannot wait. You, so can you tell the people where they can pre-order your book? We'll have it in the show notes as well. And also when the book is coming out.
1: Yeah. So the book is coming out May 16th um, and it's coming out from Riverhead Books. So which is part of Penguin Random House and it, you can pre-order it wherever books are sold. Um, I will give you a link where I have, you know, where folks can order a signed copy if they want. That's what I got. Um, yay thank you for pre-ordering (laughs) pre-orders matter they're very important i'm sure you've all heard the spiel um but they actually do matter
0: nice and are you going to be doing an audiobook as well
1: um there will be an audiobook thank god i am not reading it well you already
0: told me you can't you can't say pharmacological and i feel like that word is going to come up a lot in this book
1: there are many scientific words and people's (laughs) last names that i cannot pronounce and so i do not want to even like know there are there are things that I'm good at. There are things that I'm not good at. This I'm more than happy to leave to the professionals to deal with. But there will be an audiobook available, and obviously an ebook as well.
0: I love it. I think this could be like a second a second like marketplace for Ali Feller to to like rule the world. Like just be right. like, I mean, she's she has the best voice ever. Just like have her do all this stuff, right? right? Like she's already the number one podcaster in the world. Just do all the audiobook stuff too. Like, you know, some of these authors don't want to read it. That's fine.
1: Allie Peller yeah. put up
0: yeah. 600 episodes. Just just go uh, take, take care of this, too.
1: I would love if Allie read my book. It would be amazing. <laughs> there
0: you go. All right, Christine, thank you so much for hopping on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.